episode of our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, ta fáilte roibh gléir agus mwyddydridim le man fóver. And I'm Caroline White. Back in 1992, FASTA co-founder Richard Douthwaite strongly critiqued the pervasive assumption that economic growth is inherently beneficial and desirable in his book, The Growth Illusion. Growth has been a major theme for FASTA since its founding, and in recent years, we've been joined by increasing numbers of other environmental and social groups who share our concern that the constant pursuit of GDP growth by governments is digging us all still deeper into the severe crises we're facing. In recent years, governments and the business world alike have often qualified their language slightly and now tend to talk about pursuing green growth or inclusive growth or sometimes post-pandemic to returning to growth. But the fundamental baseline emphasis on economic expansion is still firmly understood. Indeed, governments generally insist that economic growth is absolutely vital to achieving and maintaining a properly function economy. There's a certain symmetry in the way that green growth advocates and green growth sceptics see each other. Both sides tend to believe that the other side is completely out of touch with the reality on the ground, or in other words, profoundly naive. They also tend to think of the other side as arrogant. For growth sceptics, growth advocates tend to have a hubristic faith in technological fixes and are prone to corruption. Meanwhile, growth advocates sometimes claim that growth sceptics don't care about reducing poverty or wish to impose a form of extreme authoritarianism, even fascism. These accusations can be extremely offensive and the debate can quickly become mired in negativity and bitterness. So, in this podcast, we'll be looking at potential ways to get beyond the debates between the green growth advocates versus sceptics and to focus instead on the common ground between all those who are concerned with both the environmental crisis and with the transition to a just economy. We'll be interviewing Beth Stratford, who's a fellow at the New Economics Foundation and a member of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance's Research Fellows Network. Beth is currently working on the PhD, which will examine the major structural and institutional changes that are needed to prepare our economy for a resource-constrained future. She's the co-author of the report, The UK's Path to a Donut-Shaped Recovery. We're also joined in the interview by David Somek of the European Health Futures Forum. We'll go over to the interview now. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, Beth. Could you say a few words about your background and what led you into the work you're currently undertaking? I'm currently writing a PhD looking at the political economy of post-growth, post-growth macroeconomics. And I got to being interested in that via working as a climate campaigner, actually as a filmmaker for a while, but basically working on energy and climate campaigning and slowly kind of realising that our demands for habitat protections and caps on fossil fuels and so on kept coming up against the problem that they were in conflict with the goal of ever cheaper goods to fuel continuing economic growth. So that's how I got interested in the topic. And over the last few years, I've also become more and more interested in the housing system, the monetary system. So 
along with a bunch of other people a few years ago I, I helped to found the London Renters Union which is a community of renters that support each other to fight for our rights and stand up against landlords but you'll see as I kind of talk a bit about some of the reforms I think we need to see in the economy how the issue of rent extraction ends up weaving into that narrative. In your research, Beth, you've criticised the way in which economic growth is sometimes discussed, and particularly the way that green growth and degrowth are often automatically pitted against each other. Could you talk about the reasons why you find that problematic? I think the argument between degrowthers and green growthers is, you know, I find it quite compelling myself. Some people find it quite entertaining, but it isn't going to be settled in a time frame that's useful for maintaining a habitable planet, right? So in the meantime, these adversaries, I think, are in danger of delivering an own goal because the more time we spend in esoteric, nerdy, sometimes quite venomous exchanges with each other about decoupling and things like that, the less time we've got to build the broad-based movement that we need. And I think that's something maybe that we learned a little bit from the climate movement and engaging with climate deniers. It did waste quite a lot of time, let's be honest. So I think the question we need to be asking is, can those of us who care about economic and environmental justice on both sides of this divide, can we agree on a basic set of demands that can stop us hurtling towards ecological collapse? And I think that we are kind of closer to a consensus than is immediately obvious. So if you like, I could outline what I think that common agenda could look like. It's got three parts to it. The first is a Green New Deal. The second is limits on resource use, pollution, etc. And the third is ending our growth dependency. So the Green New Deal, I won't say a lot about that because it's just such a no brainer. I think everyone can unite around the need for massive, massive levels of investment in public transport and insulation and cycle paths and renewables and all that kind of stuff. I think sometimes critics of the degrowth movement try to portray them as anti-technology Luddites, if you like, who don't care about efficiency and so on. I don't think that's accurate, actually. I think what degrowthers object to is the sort of hubris and recklessness of putting all of our eggs in the efficiency basket, when actually the rates of technological change necessary and decoupling necessary to avert ecological collapse, to put it politely, they are extremely ambitious. So as well as scaling up the good stuff, we've got to be scaling down the bad stuff and ensuring that the environmental benefits we hope to achieve through efficiency improvements are not actually compromised by the rebound effect and so on. So that brings us to the second part of this agenda, which is environmental protections, resource caps. Note, I'm not proposing limits on GDP. I'm proposing limits on resource use. And that's, I think, really important. I think one of the reasons that people get upset about the idea of degrowth is because they imagine it involving some kind of descending cap on national income. And as far as I know, there are no serious thinkers in the post-growth community who are proposing to try and control the market value of production and consumption at that aggregate level. A, because it's impractical, and B, because it just doesn't really make sense to be trying to control this metric that is several steps removed from what we actually care about. We can design policies directly to control resource use, habitat destruction, pollution. So I think that's one of the problems with the term degrowth, actually, is that it makes it sound as if GDP reduction is the end goal. And I actually don't think that's the case for most members of the degrowth movement. What they think is that shrinking GDP is a likely outcome of the necessary protections for the environment, the necessary limits on resource use. 
and I actually think that convincing people of the need for caps on resource use and environmental protections and taxes and regulations that tighten until we are back within our fair share of ecological space, I think it's easier to explain the case for that than it is to try and convince people that the market value of the goods and services they buy must be reduced. Do you see what I mean? And I also think that for growth to be genuinely green, it has to take place within those resource caps and so on. So if green growth advocates are opposing those kind of caps and those protections, then that suggests that their confidence about the feasibility of actually achieving green growth is disingenuous. So that leaves me with the third part of the agenda, which is ending growth dependency. What do I mean by growth dependency? I'm, I imagine this is bread and butter for your listeners, but I can explain briefly if that's helpful. Sure. We're dependent on growth at the moment to maintain economic and political stability, because if GDP flatlines or contracts, then our economy tends to tipple into crises of debt, inequality, hardship, unemployment. And so in some ways, it's really no wonder that policymakers remain preoccupied with this narrow economic metric, despite almost everybody agreeing now that GDP is a poor measure of progress and societal well-being. So again, this is another part that I think that both sides of the debate should be able to support because you don't have to be a degrowther to see why ending our growth dependence is a good idea. We've seen with the pandemic that this visceral fear of economic contraption, of consumption slowing down, turned out to be a major impediment to the containment of COVID. It made governments around the world slow to impose public health measures and really eager to lift them, particularly in workplaces, in spite of the warnings from scientists. And similarly, the spectre of shrinking GDP has been invoked all around the world at different times to block or water down food standards, labour rights, as well as environmental protections and so on. So our dependence on growth actually puts policymakers in a really dangerous straitjacket. And I would hope that everybody should be able to see that when there are certain forms of economic activity that imperil our health or our well-being, then our governments have to have the confidence to scale back those activities without the fear of triggering an economic crisis. And that confidence only comes if we tackle our growth dependency. Again, our growth dependency, it doesn't foreclose the possibility of growth. It just makes society resilient in the face of economic contraction or economic shock. And so I think there should be nothing inherently objectionable about that for people who are optimistic about green growth. And in fact, I would argue that the economic changes required to end our dependence on growth would actually be really attractive and emancipatory for the majority of people in our economy who suffer precarity and exploitation under the current system. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it'd be so emancipatory? So this requires me to get into what's required to end our growth dependence. And so I'm drawing here on a report that I wrote recently called The UK's Path to a Donut-Shaped Recovery, where we cover four strategies for ending our growth dependency relating to jobs, rents, debt, and safeguarding basic needs. So I'll go through each of those one by one. Feel free to interrupt if anything's like unclear. So jobs. Why is it that we associate low growth with rising unemployment? Well, it's because automation and other technological innovations over time allow us to produce the same amount with less people and less time. So that creates the spectre of robots stealing our jobs. And historically, we've relied on consumption growth in order to generate more work and to avoid rising unemployment. 
But there is an alternative and more environmentally sustainable way of maintaining employment, and that is to share out the remaining work. So as automation and mechanization reduces the need for labor, instead of using those productivity improvements just to drive down prices and sell more goods, companies could offer workers a shorter working week at a higher hourly pay rate. Now, that isn't a solution that most profit-oriented companies are going to deliver of their own accord. It's going to require coordination, legislation, and a major shift in the balance of power in workplaces so that people who invest their labour are no longer systematically excluded from decision-making. Historically, reductions in working time were achieved through union bargaining and legislation, and they stalled when the balance of power in workplaces shifted away from workers. So until 1980, increases in productivity were accompanied by decreases in the average hours worked per week. But since then, the benefits of productivity improvements have been increasingly captured by managers, shareholders, landowners. So that's why ending our growth dependency requires us to strengthen unions, democratise workplaces, so that those who invest their labour have a seat at the table. And if they're empowered, if their pay better reflects the value that they create, then working time reduction becomes a much more feasible means of maintaining employment, even in the face of automation, even in the face of slowing growth. So that's jobs covered. The second part of the strategy is about rents, reducing and redistributing rents. Now, when political economists talk about rent, they're not just talking about the incomes extracted by landlords. What they mean is incomes that can be extracted by anybody in the economy who controls scarce or monopolised assets. So that could be land and housing, but it could also be energy infrastructure, utilities, finance, intellectual property. And if you have control of those sorts of monopolizable and scarce assets, then you are able to extract an income at the expense of everybody else. Now, in a slowing economy, you just can't have people accumulating the power to extract unearned wealth. You can't have people accumulating that power to take a bigger and bigger slice of the pie when the pie itself isn't growing. So diffusing that power to extract rent and socialising the unavoidable rents, which arise from the unavoidable scarcity of resources, is probably the most important part of escaping our growth dependency. And it, it's a really, really big project. There isn't really space to cover all of it here, but it's, it'll involve overhauling the intellectual property system, changing the way that we govern land. Probably the most low-hanging fruits are around taxation, taxing dividends, capital gains, monopoly profits, financial transactions, inheritance, all of these unearned incomes. All of that brings in lots more revenue, which, of course, you can use for your various other social purposes. At the moment, income from the ownership of assets is taxed at a lower rate than income from actual work. And I think that's so intuitively unjust that that's why I think that that's a low hanging fruit for us to go for. So that's rent extraction and jobs covered. Debt is the third plank of this strategy. Debt is really difficult to pay down without growth. Debt is, in some ways, it's something that gives our system a dynamism. It can become extremely problematic. If you're taking out loans with the assumption of growing income and growing asset prices, and then for whatever reason, your expectations don't come to pass, then debts become really, really dangerous, not only for the individual debtor, but for the economy as a whole. And it's worth stressing here that I'm not talking about public debt. That's not really the concern here, in the sense that there is going to be an effort to use our public COVID-19 debts as a justification for a whole new round of austerity. And I think it's important to 
to stress that that would be unnecessary and counterproductive. First of all, because over a third of our public debt in the UK is owned to our own central bank. So it can actually be rolled over indefinitely, as Japan's experience has demonstrated. And second, because the cost of government borrowing is negative in real terms at the moment. So creditors are effectively paying for the privilege of holding government debt. So it's a great time, actually, for government to borrow to invest. So the focus now should be on reducing our exposure to private debt crises. And that's about regulating to reduce forms of inflationary lending, so excessive mortgage lending, for example. It's about correcting the bias in our tax system that encourages people to use debt over equity for funding, about clamping down on the use of debt for tax avoidance purposes. It's about facilitating debt write-downs for households in problem debt. Sorry, that, that is pretty geeky stuff, so probably best if we leave that behind. The f- we've covered debt rent extraction and jobs. The fourth plank in the strategy is about safeguarding basic needs. So in the UK, many essential goods and services like social care, energy, water, transport, they're controlled by private companies and our ability to access those services depends on our economic fortune. And that obviously makes us very, very vulnerable if we fall on hard times. It makes all of the things I've just talked about, debt crises, unemployment crises, rent extraction, it makes all of those things much, much more dangerous. Also makes it very, very difficult to introduce carbon taxes because the poorest in our society are already struggling to cover the cost of energy and fuel. So if you raise the price, then you just make that problem a lot worse. So what can we do about that? Well, we can extend the principle of free public services from healthcare and education, where it's generally accepted, to other areas like childcare, adult social care, housing, transport, energy, water, access to the internet, so that everybody has access to life's essentials. There's a new group that's just set up. There's a website that you can find called the Social Guarantee. And I think that's a really nice phrase that they're advocating precisely for what I've just described, a social guarantee, public funded universal services to ensure that everybody has access to life's essentials. How do we pay for it? Well, the taxation of rents is a big part of the answer, but we can also use those who use more than their fair share of our natural resources to cover some of the costs. So you have a frequent flyers levy, which would help to fund a free bus travel, or you have an entirely new energy tariff system. So at the moment we have standing charges on gas and electricity, which means that those who use the least energy pay the most per unit. We don't have to have a system like that. We could say the first energy units are free. There's a basic energy entitlement. And only after you've used that basic entitlement is there an escalating tariff structure, which effectively would discourage very profligate and wasteful uses of energy whilst massively reducing the bills for the poorest households. So that's one example of how you would go about funding a social guarantee. And I think that those four changes together, empowering workers, tackling rent extraction, reducing our exposure to debt crises and safeguarding basic needs, those are things that would really substantially reduce the exploitation and the precarity that's suffered by millions of people under the current system, as well as making the economy more resilient in the face of economic contraction. So it reduces our growth dependency and makes all of these environmental measures that we need so much more feasible to do. 
we've been very interested recently in the notion of transformation catalysts. So how a movement is created. Just listening to you there, I was just thinking that most of the things you're talking about would be very unpopular to the elites, to those in power, to those who are actually making a lot of money at the moment, to the frequent flyers, you know, to those making profits and so on. I'd be very interested in hearing your comments about how you start to form a massive coalition around making this massive transformation. How much thought have you given to that? Well, I can't at all claim to be an expert on mobilization or movement building, but I would 100% agree with your observation that the kind of things that we need to do are not going to appeal to current elites and the people who are profiting from the status quo. Whereas the people who would benefit from the changes I describe are very large in number. So I think that our strategy has to be appealing to that larger number. And what's quite frustrating to me is that there are people who certainly present themselves as concerned of people on the left and concerned with economic justice who have taken a real dislike to the degrowth movement. And they've perhaps deliberately or perhaps cynically interpreted it as as austerity, as eco austerity and as sort of requiring consumption reductions from the kind of people who've already suffered from four decades of neoliberalism. And so in a way, and I don't know who's to blame for that, whether that's a communication fault in the degrowth movement or whether that's a deliberate mischaracterization by those critics. But it just sort of goes to show that I think we have to be smarter. And so just sort of going around calling for an end to growth, it's just not going to appeal. It's just not going to appeal to people who are already absolutely at the end of their tether, who already don't feel that they have access to their, their basic needs. And so that's why I feel like we need to reframe things. We're not talking about nice charitable policies that give handouts to, to poor people who haven't been able to earn enough. You know, we need to help those poor people out with their transport, etc. No, no. No, this has got to be framed as people claiming their entitlement to their fair share of our common inheritance. So, for example, with housing, nobody alive today can take credit for creating the land underneath our housing or the sand in the concrete or the coal that was in the brick furnace. All of those resources are gifts from nature. And there ought to be, if you were designing your system from scratch, there would be a right for each of us to access our fair share of that common inheritance. Now, if there was some way of making real that right, of exercising that right, then the cost of housing would be totally affordable because all you'd be paying for is the labour involved in putting all the raw materials together to build a house, which is a very, very small proportion of the total cost of property. At least in the UK now, land accounts for about 72% of the price of the average house. So, of course, we're a long, long way from a system like that. A lot of my research is around how we go about about reforming the land and housing system to get closer to such a system. And it's not easy, it's not straightforward, it's not just about slapping on a land value tax at all. But I somehow think that these sorts of reforms, there's something about building a movement that recognises that we don't live in a meritocracy, that things that ought to be common goods have actually been captured by private interests. 
and incomes that are presented as the result of hard work are actually the result of control and power over what should be our common resources. And fixing all those problems, you don't even have to say this is about ending our growth dependency. Growth dependency is an extremely geeky, wonky idea. You can just present these reforms as what's needed to deliver economic justice. It just so happens that they also reduce our growth dependency, which is great because that will allow us to put in place the protections on resource use. I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is in terms of transforming health, and Sean mentioned about transformational catalysts and so on, one of the things you look at is what are the incentives for change? And at the moment, while I absolutely understand the logic of what you're proposing, I also absolutely agree about not having a cap on growth and so on. It's not the point. But actually, Economies, as I understand it, as an ignorant layperson, depend on people investing. And if, in fact, you're taking away a lot of the power of ownership of land and the incentives people have to invest, how can you have a resilient economy? That sounds like an ignorant question to you, probably. But for me, there's a kind of problem there. No, it's not an ignorant question. It's a good question. In a way, the question you're posing is what I think flows from what you're saying is to what extent are we or should we be dependent on rich individuals deciding what gets funded and what doesn't get funded? Do we want to have a system where we have to somehow bribe the people who have resources by giving them more resources to make their resources available for us to invest in the things we need? And I I don't think that's an ideal system. And I also don't think it's necessary. We already know that millions and millions of people are perfectly happy to their savings in their bank account depreciating in value because they haven't got the time to think about what they want to do with that money. So we don't really need to pay people to induce them to save. People save. People put their money in their bank account because they want to use it at a later point. So I think the idea that people won't save anymore unless we give them very large returns for the privilege isn't quite right. In terms of taking on risk, we know that if you're asking people to take on very large amounts of risk with their money, you're going to have to give them a reward for doing that. But we know that not all forms of risk taking are socially beneficial. We've got people taking huge gambles, using the economy like a casino, effectively crashing the operating system of our entire economy and forcing taxpayers to pick up the pieces. When it comes to the risk of funding the types of research and development for the really big, important technological breakthroughs that we've seen, we know it's almost always the public sector that's taking those risks. I think this is Mariana Matsukato's work, the GPS and touch screens and all of these big breakthroughs in technology were publicly funded. But what we've allowed is for somehow private companies then to extract the rents that come from the commercialization of that research. So I think that it would be a better system, actually, if the state took a a bigger role in deciding what kinds of investment and innovation and research and development will deliver the big breakthroughs that we need right now. And then let's keep control of that intellectual property. Let's put it into an intellectual property commons. I don't think I've completely answered your question, but I do think that it's a question of opening our imaginations to different ways of financing the things that we need so that we're not sticking with the current setup, which says that 
unless we bribe existing already rich people with more rewards, we're not going to get the finance that we need. Well, I think that we have all sorts of levers for getting the finance into the right places. Can I come back to you on that? You raised two things. One is about the casino, which I absolutely agree with. And you haven't said anything to just how you get rid of the casino, because it is to me, it's appalling what happens on the stock exchange and the effect it has on our lives. The other one, though, is a different one you also talk about, which is putting things in the hands of the state. But the fact is, do we know of any government in the world who is not corrupt? and is in fact being influenced by the very people that you're saying we want to take power away from. I mean, how do you do that? Because the truth is politicians, by and large, are always really trying to appease people in power. So to be able to get a government to behave in the way you say, it seems to me a little bit fanciful. A big part of it is the too big to fail. So these big financial institutions know they're too big to fail, and therefore they take huge risks. We have to break up the big financial institutions, there's no way around it. We have to break them up so that they know they can be allowed to fail and then they won't be able to take such massive risks. We also just have to have much better prosecution of the people guilty of fixing LIBOR, for example. Those people need to go down. Also, a financial transaction tax would discourage very, very large amounts of useless, frothy speculation. I would say it's a mixture of taxation and reforms to change the structure and purpose of the financial institutions. So, for example, we could have taken RBS, which the government obviously has a majority share in, break up RBS into a series of regionally headquartered public banks with a mandate to lend into local economies, give them the post office branches, diversity in the banking system as a whole. And actually, this leads me into your second question, which was about power and your concern that governments are always corrupt. Well, I mean, the fact is governments and states are all we have, actually, to take on the power of big multinational corporations, big capital, which currently they've got mercenary armies, they've got private security groups, they've got land resources, they've got a huge amount of power. And really, the only institution that can match that power is the state. And it is, of course, it's massively flawed, but really it's all we've got. And so we better not abandon it and we better do absolutely everything we can to strengthen democracy and to hold it to account and try and improve it. Because what else are we going to do? We're not rising up with our pitchforks against Monsanto. I don't think that's any less fantastical than what I've tried to describe. But I really agree with you. The issues of centralization of power are, are critical. And so, for example, when I'm talking about public funding and trying to channel investment through democratic institutions, I think it is critical that we diffuse power as much as possible in that process. So that's why having a network regionally headquartered banks that each have decision-making power, have face-to-face relationships with local businesses. You need that to do proper good banking to support small businesses. You have to have relational banking, face-to-face relationships. So you have to have decision-making vested at a local level. The current banking system, one of the reasons that it's totally failing to support small businesses and productive businesses is because the decisions are being taken at these remote sites. We've lost all of that expertise that is required to support small and medium-sized enterprises effectively because the decisions are taken remotely at these big shareholder-owned mega banks. (laughs) 
That was Beth Stratford, an economics researcher who is a fellow of the New Economics Foundation and co-author of the recent report, The UK's Path to a Donut-Shaped Recovery. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Please tune in also at the end of October for our next episode. Many thanks to Beth Stratford and David Somek, and of course to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Our live ille.